Okay, everyone, welcome back to a bonus episode. And um, today we thought to flip the script a little bit. And I've decided to uh, invite my first guest, Cairo, to come back and to actually interview me. Uh, so this is um, what the episode will be. Um, I'll pass on to Cairo in a minute, but before I really just wanted to thank everyone who's been listening, everyone who's subscribed and who's been sharing the, the episodes. I hope everyone's been enjoying the different interviews uh, and it means a lot, not just to me personally, but, who, but to everyone who's been involved and um, in the interviews and have uh, everyone who's given their time uh, yeah, I, I would say it means a lot to, to them as well. So thank you so much. And uh, always keep sharing, keep talking about it, because uh, uh, we're here to, to share uh, our experiences. Um, and without further ado, because I feel that I'm beginning to ramble, I'm going to pass on to Cairo. Hello. Hi, Ryan. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Yeah. I... I wanted to make an address as well to the to the audience, to the listeners, that we've 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 come full circle, um, and we're meeting again, and you know we're in a different a different space now as we've switched roles, um, and just to note that we've heard you guide us guide us as the interviewees and also the audience, and I think that you've done such a great job with that. And I just want to say thank you for trusting me with this role now. Um, and I hope that I, I do it justice. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you will. Um, I trust you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I trust you. And yeah, very excited. Thanks. So I thought that I'd, I'd like to continue with the tradition um, and and of the opening of the the interview or podcast and just to ask you now to introduce yourself um yeah to to us yeah um i think yeah i think i've been revealing a little bit uh each episode but uh obviously my name is ryan i'm um i'm from portugal originally uh i've lived in the US, I've lived in Scotland. Uh, I've now been in London for, for more than a decade. And all those things feel important for me to mention because they've shaped so much of my life, uh, those experiences. Um, obviously, I'm a trained drama therapist um, and, uh, and I'm currently training to become a sex therapist, uh, which is very exciting. And, uh, and I think also another big part of my identity is, uh, is the fact that I am queer uh, and gay. And as I've mentioned in a few episodes as well, uh, and those identities are, are very important to me. And I always like to, to mention them as well. And I think, I think that's it for now. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get more into more of it. Yeah, okay. Thank you, Ryan. Um, I I want to do the, yeah. We'll do the icebreaker, and then I have another question that I'd like to ask. But the icebreaker again, keeping with tradition, is uh, what was the last song that you listened to? Right. Uh, I've recently discovered 
just literally yesterday, um, a singer from Cape Verde, um, and um, her name is uh, Mayra Andrade. And um, I've discovered uh, her most recent album from 2019 called Manga. And, um, and I would say probably the last song I listened was from that album. And it was a song called uh, Affet, uh, which means affection. And uh, yeah. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> Um And the question I, I was thinking, and I was wondering when, when to ask this to you, but I think we, we can start now at the beginning, is how, how are you feeling now? Any initial kind of thoughts or feelings about being on the other side of being the interviewee rather than the interviewer? Um, because you are in, you know, it, we'll get into it in, in so many different roles where you do kind of take the lead and you guide and as a therapist you guide and and yeah this this time round you don't have the questions <laughs> and you don't know what's going to be said and yeah I was just wondering how you how you felt about that I am a little bit nervous I think uh, as you said I tend to lead uh I tend to I tend to want to control things. Um, sometimes from a very loving space, you know, uh, the fact that I'm a therapist and, and even in the interviews, I hope that came across. Um, so yeah, I would say that I'm nervous, um, but I'm also really trying to connect to to the idea that I know myself and that I know. Um, I know what I might want to talk about and what I might not want to talk about. So I trust that I can make those decisions. Uh, and I'm trying to connect to that <laughs> at the moment because I feel sometimes uh, when I'm being asked questions, I feel sometimes that I have to reveal a lot. Um, and actually I don't have to. And that idea of privacy is something that I've been just thinking about a lot in the past year in particular. So, so yeah, I've come to a place where I trust that I know uh, where I stand in certain topics. And, and I also feel comfortable saying I'm not comfortable talking about that, for instance. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think there is something in the past year where maybe we've, we've and I know I certainly have thought more about how much I do share. And, and I, I wonder if it's, you know, it's because we've now moved from a, a physical space to an online space and and we know that kind of the use of social media or, or texting or Zoom, um, our inhibitions are lowered anyway. So, so we might find that we are sharing more than we would in person and just the importance of boundaries um, and, and maybe trying to understand where that, that need or to, 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 that feeling to need to share is, is coming from or you know if it's oversharing um yeah so I, I think that's important yeah because you know I think in the you know we do live in an age of social media where we, we share a lot uh with people that we often don't know very well or don't know at all and um and having grown up really I think you know I've for example, I started on uh, on Facebook probably in 2007. So that's, gosh, 14 years. Um, so initially, Facebook, you know, was very much about revealing everything. 
by yourself and it was that real break with oh my god I can say anything Mm. Um, and actually in the past year in particular but probably in the past two years I've been really holding back on just sort of questioning myself do I need to say all of that do I need to share all these details with people I don't know Mm. because I also then noticed I wasn't even sharing them with people I did know like my friends were finding things out through my blog <laughs> versus finding out through me. So, yeah. And I, I think there's, it's almost touching on uh, the us or those of us from marginalized communities and that, that need to share as well. And, and maybe, you know, the, the, the fact that we're therapists as well. And I was listening to your podcast with Sam and and you're talking about the importance of sharing yourself with others and and through that you inspire others uh and, and you know what you're talking about what you're sharing others will connect to it and I I think there's that again we're coming back to this this balance of trying to to share your you know your most authentic self of the world in order to um inform engage inspire and, and then, but also not giving too much of yourself. It's a, almost similar to a therapy room where, yeah. you know, you don't, you're not going to tell your whole life story, but if something maybe you feel will resonate with the client or the, you know, who you're working with, you might, you might offer that piece of information. Mm. But again, it's, yeah, it's, it might be slightly different in a, in a blog format to just, you know, one-on-one with somebody. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I, I think, now (laughs) let's get into it um what I I was yeah so I was listening to 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 Sam's your blog with your blog your podcast with Sam and also thinking about your journey into drama therapy and how you know how how different it was and and I picked up on some key things that you said that you you know you studied politics because you wanted to save the world and then and yeah. then it was therapy to just try and save one person then you realized actually I'm only here to save myself and I was just yeah I was just wondering what your what your journey has been like into into drama therapy but also into just being a therapist because you are you know you're, you're doing another course at the moment yeah um I think I think in many ways it always the idea of politics was always there in the sense that for example at school the social sciences were were my favorite subject and they were the subjects where I excelled at the most as well as languages and um and so I always and then I always had the ambition of leaving Portugal. Um, and I always had this fantasy of working at the United Nations. So that was like uh, my big <laughs> my big vision for myself. And, um, and then when I moved to the States, I, I lived near Washington, D.C., which is a very political city. Uh, you know, you can argue it's the political center of the world in many ways. And... Um, yeah, and, and everyone was quite engaged in politics at school, and that was really different from, from my experience in Portugal. And, um, and so that became more solidified that, that I was going to do that. But then also in the States, I, 
as a way to make friends, I joined a uh, very American movie like I joined the drama club at school and um, and then the majority of my friends were from the theater from the drama club and um, and I fell in love with being on stage uh, as an actor because I've always danced and so I was used to dancing on stage but not acting um, and then I felt that maybe I would like to do that so then I did a joint degree in Scotland, uh, in politics, in theater. Um, but very early on, as I started learning more and more about politics and doing my modules on like the United Nations and international development and human rights, the more all I could see was the corruption of a system. And, and all I could see is that I would not be happy within that. Uh, because it all felt to me like a, like a bunch of games and I don't like to play games with people. And so that was, my, that was the end of my political career really, mm. <laughs> was learning about politics. Um, and at the same time, I, I, I was doing youth work in, 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 in Glasgow and working with young LGBT people and doing you know, forum theater uh, with them and um, about topics that they chose and uh, topics that are quite hard emotionally. And that's when I started realizing, wow, there's a lot of power in theater that's not about performance, but then I'm also not equipped to be um, supporting these young people through these massive um, personal crises and, and issues and and so that's what ultimately led me to therapy was wanting to know more, understand more of how to help people. And, um, and because I'd done theater, drama therapy felt like uh, the next step in terms of that process. Um, so yeah, it, it sort of, you know, all my even to this day, even the sex therapy, it's something that has emerged over the years. It's not something I ever planned. Uh, and the same with drama therapy, it's just something that emerged. I'd never considered even being a therapist. It's just something that emerged uh, along the way and something that now makes perfect sense to me that, that, that this is what I do. Yeah. But ultimately I, I never planned for it. Yeah. Mm. And I'm wondering what your kind of understanding is about drama therapy now compared to maybe when you first heard about it and thought, yeah, this is, this is the path that I want to take. Yeah. Um, uh, I was dreading this question. <laughs> <laughs> because um, I've always been very analytical and still am. And so literally when I heard about drama therapy, I took it literally and thought, okay, I'm going to learn how to, how to incorporate drama into therapy, into psychotherapy. And, um, and there's aspects of that. Absolutely. We do learn to do that, but I think there's also aspects of, uh, of our training and, and of our profession 
which include the drama itself as healing, right? Doing drama in itself, being creative in itself is healing and is a process in itself. And it doesn't necessarily need a therapist sometimes. Mm. Um, so that was also something that I learned uh, on the course uh, whilst training. But I've always been, I, I've always described myself as a very heady drama therapist. So I start with thoughts and um, and then move on to other things. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't start from the body, for instance. I, I'm not that way inclined. Um, but I think, I think we talked about this in our interview, which is the idea of stories and narrative. So that's, that's a big part of how I conduct myself as a drama therapist, is looking at the narratives of someone's life. Even if I don't then go into the metaphor or find metaphors for it, I really look at people's lives as narratives and, um, and that's how I find myself helping them and supporting them. And I look at my own life the same way. Uh, so for me right now, yeah, for me right now, trauma therapy is a tool that I use, uh, a tool that I've been using, but I felt over the years, especially now, uh, especially since COVID in particular, where everything moved online or most things moved online that I've sort of um, become more and more a talk-like therapist rather than a, a creative therapist. Mm. Like sometimes I need to remind myself to, okay, be a bit more creative, Ryan. Don't just talk, you know, what, what else can you use to, to help mm. this client? So, and maybe that's also because I'm not creating anything for myself. I'm not engage with any kind of personal creativity, which would ultimately affect how I am as a creative therapist, mm. because that part of me isn't very alive at the moment and hasn't been for, for some time. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's in, it almost leads me onto my next point because you, if we're talking about kind of being in the head and being in the body and, and drama therapy, quite, quite a big portion of drama therapy focuses on being in the body and using the body. And I then go back to you kind of always doing dance and, and loving dance and, you know, that's body and movement and, uh, and then reading your, reading your paper that was published in 2018 uh, from isolation towards intimacy, healing emotional wounds in HIV positive gay men. And the use of body and movement techniques that you know with with that client group and yeah just maybe how your practice has, has evolved maybe or, or or something's come in and the the there's been maybe a disconnect from the body uh and i wonder in your then now training as a sex therapist that we it's you know that's very body based and uh maybe you're finding a way back to that. I certainly am. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly am because um, 
because it's also a very experiential course, you know, the, how I'm training at the moment to in, in sex therapy is to not just to understand theory, obviously, but to understand and not also just understanding anatomy, but to really understand the combination of everything that we are and how that affects, you know, our sexuality. And within that, you know, ultimately as a sex therapist, I, I would suggest certain activities to clients. And during my training at the moment, I'm doing all those activities mm. to feel for myself how, how, how that feels, you know, what kind of activities am I drawn to? What kind of activities am I scared of? Because that will be also how people feel um, in, in the room when I talk about certain things. So yeah, I'm definitely returning to the body, uh, which feels really great. And yeah, you're probably ultimately, yeah, make, make me remember a, a lot of my initial training in drama therapy. And, and yeah, I, I I think that often happens to us as as therapists when we when we just start out or when we're on placement or training, we're we're so connected to the 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 kind of amalgamation of that theory and the practical and and you're you're you're, you're you know as you said with the the sex therapy training, you're doing the activities yourself. You're you're fully immersed in the experience, and then you leave and maybe some of that doesn't fit into the world that you're working in or in the communities that you're working in. And then, so you, you maybe lose aspects um, and then return to it in a different, a completely different form. Uh, so I'm, yeah, I, I just wanted to notice that because I know that you are so expressive with the body and then, and then there's a, there's a stark difference of then as a therapist, it's no, I'm very much with the head and the body's cut off. And I'm, I'm really glad that you're, you're coming back to that and incorporating the body more into your practice will be incorporating it more yeah 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 okay um i was just wondering what your again it's another one of of your questions so mm. i'm doing them in a pick and mix order yeah um, surprise me <laughs> <laughs> but just what your greatest motivator is uh i would say is otherness I, um, because I, I have felt different since I was very young. I'm one of those queer people who knew I was queer at the age of five. Obviously I didn't have words for it. I just had an awareness that I was different and I felt differently from those around me. And I also saw the world differently. And so because of that, um, I was always in this in-between space of belonging and not belonging, uh, uh, sort of back and forth, and then spend many years not belonging. And um, and so I've always and and so that have always driven me understanding what this otherness is and why do I feel so different. Uh, and then obviously, as I spent more and more time not belonging, I started recognizing other people who also didn't belong. Uh, and I think that's why I'm so attuned to certain 
people who are also different because at the margins, they were the people I saw as well for different reasons. Um, so then I was very interested in the dynamic of belonging and not belonging. And, and the questioning of that, as I think, has been my drive. Mm. And, and understanding the injustices that happen in that space of belonging and not belonging. Mm. And I think that's even the politics thing comes from that trying to make a difference, for instance. Yeah. And just with that kind of belonging and not belonging and the otherness, and I'm just wondering how that was, how you brought that into the drama therapy training or how, yeah, how obviously that came with you and yeah, and yeah what that was like. I think, I remember feeling quite able to bring my queerness into it. Um, and also be very aware of other differences that were there in the space. Um, I think in, mo in my cohort, there were, you know, lots of issues around disabilities that people struggle with in terms of the institution. Race was a massive topic. Um, and I was a student rep as well. So, so I was, uh, again, being in, in, in those positions of, of leading and supporting. Um, so I was the person that people came to with their difficulties with institutions so that I could try and liaise with them, um, but I can also recognize I wasn't critical enough about it. Like I didn't have enough critical thinking about my own experiences as a queer person in terms of a training, in terms of an academic therapeutic training. So, you know, so, so sometimes I, um, and by that, I mean, let's say we're learning a theory. Uh, I, I would often just uh, not question uh, the, you know, it's heteronormative positions because I wasn't there yet, I don't think, in terms of being able to recognize and, and, um, and notice certain things. And... Um, but then I also, I guess, very typical of people who have spent many years at the margins and at the edge of things, I carved out my own path within the training. So I did, I had to do three placements, for instance. And the first placement I did was a requirement that I had to do. I had to do a placement with children. So I did that and, uh, and got that out of the way. And then I did what I wanted, basically. I found my own placements uh, in addiction and then in sexual health, working with gay men. And those were the things I really wanted to explore um, because I was interested again at the marginalization of, 
of addicts at the marginalization of gay men, and then particularly ended up working with HIV positive gay men, which was even more marginalized within the gay community. Um, and so in many ways, I was in a bit of a bubble because I did what I wanted without uh, necessarily inviting the institution itself to participate in that journey with me. Mm. I just found my own places and, and did that and then reported back uh, in the ways I needed to. Mm. So, yeah, so in that sense, you know, that kind of self-sufficiency that comes from being at the margin sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess thinking back now as, you know, qualified practicing trauma therapist, is there is there anything that maybe you would have done differently? Like, you know, you, you we speak about the self-sufficiency and you just kind of got on with it. You just got on with what was needed. And uh, yeah, and I wonder if there's maybe more thought about bringing the institution in or, or approaching the institution with with the margins, with the otherness. Absolutely. I, um, I think, I think doing that during my placements gave me a false sense of thinking that I knew what I was doing and thinking that I didn't need an institution, uh, which is typical self-sufficient behavior, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. you, you do things on your own and then you realize, oh, I don't need anyone. I can't, yeah. I, I can't keep doing this. And then you reach a point where you realize, no, you can't, you actually need systems around you. Um, because eventually once I graduated, I just kept working in those environments. And then eventually I burned out and didn't practice for six months. Um, which, you know, it's, it's a huge part of, I guess, why I then really switched up to a more analytical way of being as a therapist because there was a big break during during that burnout. But um, but that was because I didn't use systems around me. I thought I could do it on my own. Um, so that's that's something I would absolutely do differently. And, and it's something I would advise trainees to, to really make use of the institution because that's why it's there. Mm. Um, as much as as much as those systems have things in place that you know pose some barriers to to some of us. At the same time, their job is also to care for us whilst we're we are in that position of trainee. Um, yeah, and then also just really making use of supervision, of clinical supervision and personal therapy, which again, the self-sufficiency went up to my head and I thought I didn't need as much as I did. Mm. Uh, and it's only looking back that I think, you know, obviously you did need that. You know, I was working very, I was working almost too closely with people who had similar life experiences than not, that, that I had had. And so, that requires a lot of clinical supervision and, and personal therapy. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. And we've sort of touched on on it, but I, I want I, I, I want to know maybe more about what your practice then looks like now with everything that you've learned and with the experience of burnout and working 
with you know experiences that are quite close to home I learned to um, be very careful about how many hours I work. And I learned to be extremely boundaried. Um, I think to a point sometimes that I'm still learning how to be flexible because I had to then go the other way and be very, very boundaried. So now I'm sort of relearning some flexibility at work. Um, because I had to ensure I had time off during the week to rest and not do anything therapy related um, and do things that fed me as a person. And, um, you know, such as doing creative things like dancing, going to a dance class, going swimming, spending time with friends, you know, things like that. I really needed to carve time out for, for those things very consciously. Um, and then also the giving myself the, the time and the flexibility to work in environments I didn't expect. So to actually be more open to opportunities that I had never planned for, that I hadn't envisioned for myself because I was quite rigid and then what my path was going to be like as a therapist and one that didn't work out because of the burnout. I, you know, at the time I experienced that as a failure of mine, which it wasn't, but then that actually allowed me to become more flexible with new opportunities. And that's why, you know, <laughs> I've been a, a manager in children's services for three years now, which is something I would have never planned to do. <laughs> because I was very against working with children. Um, and here I am, you know, mm. still loving it most days. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's also about variety. That, that was the other thing I've learned is that I can't be a therapist every day of the week. Um, first of all, I can't work every day of the week. And the days I work, they can't all be about me being a therapist. It can be therapy related, but I can't be a therapist only. So I have different roles, you know, I have, I have a therapist role, I have a manager role, uh, I have a psychoeducation role where I just deliver talks and, and workshops. And um, so it's all related, which feeds me and, you know, feeds my sense of meaning and purpose, but it doesn't mean it's a one-to-one -one every single day, all day. And I'm, I'm thinking about this variety and, and it seems if we think back in terms of your life, there's been so much variety, you know, you've, there's, you know, all the different countries that you've lived in and, and even your journey into drama therapy and now with the different kind of places or different hats that you wear. Um, and I was just wondering if you could speak to the, the different intersections of your identity and and how that fits in with the practice of drama therapy. Hmm. What comes up for me straight away um, in terms of intersection is, uh, you know, as I said, my queer identity is very important to me in the sense that it's sort of the identity that has given me 
a sense of being different and, and thus then a sense of being able to observe difference around me and being curious about it. But at the same time, I'm still a white man. So there's that interesting intersection where at times I really belong in places without even trying. <laughs> uh, I'm really at the center as a white man. And, uh, and then something happens where my queerness stands out and then I immediately feel left out or outside of the center of power. Um, and that's really interesting to me because um, it's often unexpected. Uh, obviously in some environments is, is very clear that I'm there as a queer man. And, and so there's a sense of um, difference or a sense of belonging if I'm within queer circles. Um, but then sometimes, um, you know, I think my work at school is very much an interesting position where, where my queerness is probably the most dormant it's, it's, it ever is at work. Because I work in primary schools, I never had any issues, but I'm aware of social narratives. And so um, it's something that I think about. Mm. And because I think about it, that's already a difference, right? That's already a sense of not belonging because a white straight man doesn't have to think about it, right. uh, about what people might say um, of, a, of a man working in a primary school. Mm. Uh, people still say things uh, actually, but there's something specific um, that people might say about white gay men working in schools that I'm aware of. Um, and I don't have any reasons to, to believe that anyone at my school would believe that actually. Um, in fact, the leadership of my school know that I'm gay. They're very open about it, uh, very supportive. So yeah, and then I have, um, as you know, which again, I feel I don't need to reveal because it's private, but I've had lots of health difficulties in the last few years. Um, which fall under, you know, that kind of hidden disability of having long-term conditions that most of the time don't change anything at all, but at certain times really affect my life. Um, and that comes into play um, at those times. You know, in the past year, 2020, I had two surgeries. So that was a massive disruption of how I feel about myself, how I feel about my ability to, to, to work and to even be myself, how to show up when you feel so weak and when you feel so um, yeah, when things feel so difficult to, to engage with. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. And I'm, 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 I'm stuck with this kind of juxtaposing image and I, I guess this is the paradox isn't it where yeah. there's the, the that that power play where at, you know you you are the center of power as as white man in at any moment because of the queerness or because of the hidden disabilities then it's it's taken uh, or it disappears um 
and and then also I'm thinking about you know with the the hidden disabilities and the surgeries and and that you know this this young Ryan in dance all the way through and then and then a point where you know there's something that's happening with the body where then surgery has to come and take over and yeah you go from you know being very expressive and creative and being able to move the body to then you know feeling very weak and and yeah these I can't think of the word almost something else taking over with the body and just how that maybe speaks to your to your your practice as a therapist or your experience of more so your experience of being a therapist with with you experiencing those that kind of that power dynamic within yourself and and how that then influences you you as a therapist in the therapy role of maybe being someone who as a therapist has the knowledge has the skill is maybe seen as somebody of authority I think more than anything my the role of my health conditions has been to force me to to connect to my humanity and by that i mean by my you know by the humility that i felt i had to accept that i'm not invisible that i i'm not always able to be my best that there will be days even weeks sometimes even months where i'm not at all my best but I'm still doing what I can. And that is still valid um, because up until, up until my health started declining in this sense, I was that kind of person who, you know, never really took many days off work, even when I was ill, you know, ignoring what my body would say about rest, ignoring physical pain in that sense. And, I remember even when I, you know, the day where, you know, my health really took a turn. I remember actually I had supervision that day, happened to have a clinical supervision that day. And I remember asking my supervisor, should I go to work tomorrow? And my supervisor was like, "Uh, no, (laughs) you can just call in and say things have happened and you can't go cancel all your appointments. And, and, and that was really revolutionary to me to say that I can't go in, that my clients won't be able to see me that day, that I'm not well enough to be a therapist or well enough to be anything <laughs> mm-hmm. at all. And so um, as hard as, it, as it's been, and it still is sometimes because it changed my relationship with my body in quite drastic ways. I feel, I feel it gave me that humanity and that in many ways released the shame and guilt of, of being able to stop and not having to say why. So yeah. as you know, like I can take days off and feel very good about that and not have any guilt now about needing time off. But it's taken me years to really get to this place of feeling that I deserve rest that I deserve to, to pause and that the world actually keeps on going and that my clients won't, their world won't end if I am not there for a week or two. Um, and that's 
very big because I think I had that and I suspect other therapists have this complex that we are essential to our clients' lives. And actually they can be without us for a few weeks, you know, it's, mm. it's, it's not that serious. And even if it is serious, someone else can take over for us if needs be, you know? Yeah. It's reminding me of, um, I just had to look up the nap ministry on, yes. on Instagram and that idea of kind of radical rest and, yeah. and looking after yourself and, and how that, that I, I guess that speaks so much to those of us in marginalized identities communities that uh, that 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 feeling of needing to be self-sufficient because there isn't that you know ability to rely on anything you know if if you don't do it it won't get done almost and and really having to unlearn that and 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 yeah even that you know you're asking your your clinical supervisor should I still go in and I and 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 it's you know it's that idea that you, that even to ask that question is you would have gone in. <laughs> I would have. You would, yeah. 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 That it, even considering, you know, should should I actually take the day off, is completely kind of yeah, just something that that isn't considered. And um, I've lost my train of thought now. So. Yeah. <laughs> but you know that reminds me also looking back. I should have taken more than one day off. Yeah. I took one day <laughs> off. Um, until I got to a point where my body stopped. Mm. And my body was like, you're not having any more of this and mm. everything's going to shut down. Mm. And then it did. And, and I burned out completely and I had to stop working for six months. Yeah. And I always say this, and I say this to my friends, I must sound like a broken record that, your body is going to tell you mm -hmm. and if you don't listen it will just it will just take over yeah uh and shut down yeah <laughs> and and force that on you if you don't if you don't listen to it and the uh, thing is we know that as practitioners right because yes. we work with the body yes. and yet i kept ignoring it thinking and that's when the toxic self-sufficiency kicks in mm. because it tells me no you can keep going you can keep doing this you know you're this independent person keep going um but then the body said no mm, yeah. yeah and it's it's I because I feel the same so I'm resonating with this here because for me I feel like I'm I'm always teetering on the edge and I sound like a broken record to my friends and I say you know you need to listen to your body and and I think I was the same. I think it was about 2018, maybe. Uh, I was just getting kind of, you know, recurring tonsillitis. And that was my body telling me, <laughs> you know, you need to put a, a, put the put the brakes on. And and I, I feel like I'm, I'm much better at listening to my body now. But I feel like it's always that, that tiny little bit of stretch where I'm like, just let me just make it to the end of the day or let me just make it to the end of the week and then I'll rest. Yeah. So I, 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 that's still, you know, it's still a balance. It's still a working progress there as well. Um, but I also, I wonder if that, that speaks to, you know, that, you know, when you were thinking about being in the margins and being othered and, and looking around you and seeing who else is beside you and then in our roles as therapists and who it is that we are working with, 
and and not feeling like we can take a day off because we need to help and mm. we need to you know we have the tools um and we have the skills and we have the resources so we need to help those others who may also be in their own margins and knowing what that feels like and so feeling like we can't afford to take to rest because there's there's others that need help yeah yeah that that is hard and it's always there i think might always be there but the only thing you can do is really manage that for yourself because i think that pressure will always be there and also you know i have um this very particular experience of my in my first job you know in those first couple of years after qualifying um in my work in addiction i lost clients like to overdose so i um so i have the experience of actual life and death within as a therapist so what that does uh or has done for me is that it puts things into perspective. So many things that people consider urgent are not urgent to me because I've actually experienced the extreme of that mm. uh, as a therapist. And so, and so that ultimately has also helped me over the years to relax in, in this sort of, you know, that account that you mentioned, NAP ministry really acknowledged this, you know, this sort of uh, race that we're always on for something. Uh, and in fact, I'm very happy to just step out, <laughs> step out of the race and take my time. Uh, and I think those experiences shaped me mm. very poignantly on, on that point of, yeah, it, life and death are urgent. Mm. And anything beyond that, it's not as urgent, mm. at least for me. So I guess then that, you know, it, it almost seamlessly uh, sits into then my next question of, you know, we've, we're talking about life and death and then we've been hit or we have been in a mm. global health crisis. Yeah. And, and I guess what the impact of COVID has had on, on you and, but also you as, as a therapist and a practitioner and how it's changed things, if, if it has um it has changed a few things um you know i i was already working online by the time the pandemic hit so i was so moving to things like zoom was not um a shock to me obviously the amount of zoom we now do is a shock still to this day (laughs) if i do seven hours of zoom in one day i'm you know i'm out uh completely fried um but um, but in other ways, and I think it was in Haley's interview that she mentioned, you know, that this is the first time that therapists are going through the exact same thing as their clients. Mm. And we don't have the option of stepping back because, as you know, sometimes when you work in a team, perhaps you can liaise with the colleague in terms of, you know, this experience, this client is way too close to me, like, I'm too close to this experience. I'm not the best therapist for this person. Can you take over this case? Like we can do that sometimes, but in this case we couldn't. So whenever clients still to this day mention how tired they are, 
of their routine, of their daily walks, of their whatever, of their Zooms. I'm sick of it as well. Yeah. You know, and and again, it's been about just being humble enough to admit that some, you know, when it's relevant, you know, I'm, I don't go into sessions complaining about how tired I am. <laughs> but sometimes it's about recognizing that that's what's happening to me as well, you know. In clients, I, I think in many ways it has removed some barriers sometimes from the therapy, right? Because a part of, maybe not all clients are as conscious of that, but many of them are that I'm also in it. Like they know I must be going through some shit as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you're human. And exactly. Not just, and not just this therapist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they'll ask me in a different, with a different tone and quality than they used to before COVID. They'll ask me how I am. Yeah. And there's a different tone to it because they know I must be going through some stuff. And I shared with you, I think, uh, even a client the other day, <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm good. And, and, and the client said, that doesn't sound very convincing, Ryan. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so we're human, talking to other humans. And so they'll recognize that sometimes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it has, yeah, it's been very, very tiring. Mm-hmm. Like at this stage of the game, we're in mid-March, 2021. You know, it's been a year of, of this experience. We're not fully out of it, um, but it's given me a massive understanding of, um, I think the collective experience, I would say, you know, the ups and downs of the pandemic, uh, I've been really able to tune into that because I've spoken to so many people over the last year. Yeah. And I think what it's, what it's, especially for me, what it's done is all of these tools and tricks and things that we have in our you know <laughs> all the tips that we have as therapists and the things that we've learned and that creativity you know when, when you are so exhausted and so fatigued that just being with that you know just being with the client sometimes is enough um yeah. and and even you know for them to acknowledge that or understand or see that you're also you know you're not you're not logging off and then going to live this completely different life where you're you know you're you're able to go out and do things you know you're you're also stuck on zoom and you're stuck in the house as well and and I think it's been helpful for some to know that it's not just them going through it and that it's not just them feeling like they're not uh utilizing all the time that they have or that they're falling out of routine or they're sleeping longer and it's it's like well it's not just you it's it's everybody and 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 sometimes it's me as well yeah yeah Uh, and how helpful that's been yeah to share yeah um I'm I'm gonna try and lift the tone a bit (laughs) and let's think about joy we're Hmm. thinking about radical rest and I almost you know I I I for me as a black woman I say it's radical joy as well mm, mm. um so what what is it that gives you joy and what yeah what is it and how do you maintain it if you can in this COVID era mm. uh, 
paradox there. <laughs> mm, mm. Um, but I like what you said about radical joy because I, I quite like the term radical. I like the idea of radicalism in this sense. And, and I think, uh, yeah, we follow you know, a lot of the same people on Instagram and we talk about them and, you know, it's, uh, it's Sonia Renee Taylor, right. That talks about radical mm. love and radical care as well. And, um, and I think, and she said the other day that she talks, she uses the word radical as a way to, in a way, push herself to think outside of yeah. what might feel possible. So I really like radical, the idea of radical and, and thinking of radical joy. You know, joy, interestingly to me, is something simple. It's quite simple. I find joy in very simple things, which the pandemic has helped me to identify, in fact. Um, so the things that I was saying earlier about being able to go to a dance class, being able to go swimming, um, being able to see my friends and spend time with my friends because another part of being othered is also that wonderful experience of finding chosen families, mm. um, which I think the queer community speaks of a lot, but I think it applies to many other communities um, and not just a queer community, but like I've missed dearly my chosen family in this past year. And, um, and so I find joy in just being around them, no matter, no matter what it is we're doing. Uh, might be a brunch, it might be a movie, it might be just going for a walk, but it's being with those people. Mm -hmm. Gives me great joy. Um, resting, you know, resting gives me joy. Resting without guilt <laughs> is a, a wonderful, joyful experience. Um, and I've been more and more able to do that and connect to that uh, in the past year. And um, yeah, good food. As you know, I love good food. I love a good drink. Uh, you know, the simple things, I think, I think that's, that's also part of my Portuguese culture, which is a culture I feel is very much uh, about enjoying the pleasures of life, the simple pleasures of life, like food and drink and, and sun and rest. You know, I used to always complain about, about how slow things moved in Portugal. And now as I'm older, I'm like, you know what? They've, they've, got, <laughs> they've got something right there. You know, we don't need to be racing any, you know, racing to nowhere all the time. Uh, so there's something to being able to stop and rest and do nothing. You know, I think Southern European cultures have that down very well. The art of doing nothing yeah. is very important. Um, yeah, and connecting, you know, I, I know it's really shallow, but like watching my favorite TV show over and over again gives me some comfort and some joy as well. And I like to do that in my time off. Um, yeah, but I think being around people is way up there, being around my chosen family, 
being able to hug them, uh, you know, touch, I, I feel is one of my love languages. So, so that's really important to me. Yeah. And I, I was almost smiling because I was like, this list is the list that keeps going and it keeps giving. And there's so many things to be joyful for that are so simple. Mm. Um, and I, 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 I want to go back, you know, I'm full of metaphors and I think that's that's you know how I fit so well into drama therapy but thinking about full circle that you know it was you interviewing me and now it's me interviewing you but then also what you were saying about um you know stepping out of the rat race and you know understanding or acknowledging that slowness in Portugal and actually how much that's needed and how you've 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 come full you know you started in Portugal and then it was Washington and Glasgow and London and it's that all these fast-paced cities and now you know it's maybe it's age maybe it's growth maybe it's a pandemic that's made you realize actually maybe maybe yeah it's the it's the sun and the connection and yeah the food that I need to be that I need to go back to and, and invite back into my life um so then moving on and we've we've touched on we've hinted on such a gorgeous paradox as the title as as a concept mm. and obviously you know you have spoken about how you came up with the mm. title we have spoken about this um but i was just wondering now yeah I've, it's it's a multiple part questions yeah so i'm wondering just using the expression not with the history or the context behind how you came up with the name but mm. just the expression such a gorgeous paradox what are those feelings that evoke in you when thinking about life and your life mm. again i think it's 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 that place of tension of the belonging and not belonging mm. Of, uh, of the joy and pain, you know, I think, I think those places, I think the in-between is where the gorgeous paradox might live. I think quite interestingly, over the weeks that I've been recording and publishing, I think, and also as I slowly prepare for a second series, I'm, uh, I'm wanting to really define what such a gorgeous paradox might mean, right? As an actual concept rather than ideas I've put together. Um, and so to me, it's, at least right now, it feels, it feels like that place of, feels like the gray area of life mm. rather than the black and white of life which is a paradox to me because most of my life I've lived in the black and white, the belonging or not belonging. Yeah. I've struggled with the middle. Um, and to realize that actually most of life happens in the middle and, and by default, I've missed most of, I've potentially missed a lot of life because I've been in the extremes of it mm -hmm. rather than in the middle of it. It feels like a paradox to me, a gorgeous one because there's still, there's still time for me to be in the middle yeah. and explore the middle and find the middle. 
and also knowing that the middle might change over time as well. Mm. Yeah. And then as, as a, a, you, you touched on it slightly, you, you hinted at it, but just thinking about the title now, we're thinking about such a gorgeous paradox and what it, what it meant for you, the journey to you, you know, coming up with the name um, all those months ago mm. to now coming to the end of this series and just wondering if, if anything else has been evoked for you or, or if your initial thoughts have changed around maybe your expectations of the podcast, your, yeah, or your understanding of what the, the title, Such a Gorgeous Paradox, would, would have been. And now, obviously, we've gone through that journey and you're, you've come out the other side. Yeah. I think in, in true fashion uh, of my life, I, I, um, like the name eventually came, came to me naturally through a lot of investigation, as I mentioned in the first episode, but it was still quite convoluted and, and there's almost quite complex. And I think over the months, it has become simpler and simpler as it goes. Uh, and this is why I'm quite interested in really defining it for myself again and continue to redefine it. Um, because um, there's been something so simple actually about the interviews. Because um, obviously I did them, I prepared for them doing them, there was always a bit of nerves, uh, depending on the person, those nerves were up and down or, but you know, every time they're published, I, 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 make, I make time to actually sit and listen to them again as, they, as they've been published um, as a way of reconnecting to that conversation and and it has really, really become about the humanity of therapists mm. over time. And initially, the description of the podcast was much more complex than that. And um, again, me being very analytical and meta narrative and all of that. But now it's more and more about the humanity of therapists. Uh, and it being as simple as that. And the gorgeous paradox of that is that I think we're often put in positions where we're not meant to be human because we must help others self, you know, yeah. selflessly um, and, and, and not, and, and provide unconditional love and compassion. And what about the days we don't have that? because we're human and we have our own lives that sometimes not be going so might not be going so well, but we still have to do the job and we might not have a lot of compassion or love that day, but we still manage to do it, you know, because we're human ultimately. Yeah. And that's what I've come to. And just thinking about roles in drama therapy as well, you know, the, the, even the therapist role is, yeah you know, even the therapist role is a role and it, and it is one, yeah, that we adopt and we take on. And, and I think sometimes we can get lost in that and we forget that we are human. Uh, 
but also what I've seen, what I've witnessed and observed in my own interviews with others is, it's just really interesting thing. Cause I've always said, I've been saying it for years since I've become a therapist that my most optimal self, my most optimal part of me is my therapist self mm. because as a therapist, I, uh, I somehow really understand boundaries and I'm able to hold it and I'm able to establish them and I'm able to communicate very clearly with people. Yeah. And then in my personal life, sometimes I have no skills <laughs> uh, in terms of any of those things. But what I've noticed in the interviews is that I wasn't being a therapist in the interviews and yet those skills still came through, mm. which means that I'm integrating and that's been really beautiful to, to observe. And I think it's, or how I kind of understand it, it's about holding space. Mm. Um, and I think when we get into that place where we are holding space for others, it doesn't have to be as, as a therapist, yeah. but in, in conversation with a friend, you know, that's where it, that's where it really comes out. And that's where the qualities shine. Um, so I feel like that's, yeah, that's maybe what we need to do more uh, is to take, just take that step back, get off that rat race and, and just hold space for mm. ourselves and for others. Um, yeah. This mm. has been such a lovely conversation. Yeah. And we always have lovely conversations and, mm -hmm. and that makes it sound really subdued actually, because <laughs> our conversations are quite fiery most of the time. Absolutely. <laughs> But it just felt, yeah, it felt nice to just kind of appreciate your journey. And, and you know, we have been friends for a while now and we have, you know, we have many conversations daily about all sorts of things. But to really strip it back and just think about how did you get from A to B? How, how yeah, how have things been affecting you? Um I've really appreciated that and I've really enjoyed this conversation as, as all the others that we have. Um, so I'm going, I think we can end here with, with the word mm. image association. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking of, oh, should I, should I mix it up and include, you know, some other words, but actually I feel like there's a sufficient range that you mm -hmm. come up with. Um, so the first one, feel. Permission. Mm. Love. Need. Grow. Forever. Mm. Connect. Always. Heal. In progress. And I'm going to add another one. Help. Mm. Ask for. Yeah. I was hoping that you would have said that. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I think we can. How do we close this? <laughs> it feels it feels weird to to formally close a conversation. Mm. It does, right? Yeah. <laughs> All these weeks that I've been interviewing people say, how do I actually end this? Um, but, uh, but yeah, thank you so much for holding this space.
for being part of this really exciting journey from the beginning to to now um, and even before it became an actual concrete thing uh, you were there when I was working this out in my head as well and um, yeah thank you thank you for today thank you for always and um, and hopefully yeah hopefully I, I I yearn for when we can see each other in person mm -hmm. and meet and hug and um, eat and drink and dance and yes and, yeah. absolutely do all the things we we've been talking about in terms of joy and radical joy together um, and for the um, our listeners in our audience again uh, thank you so much for taking the time for being part of this journey and uh, and yeah continue continue sharing if if things resonate with you uh, continue to share with your networks and to people you know who might resonate with what we talk about and uh yeah i'll see you again in series two um and more about that will come in a few months i won't give you any dates um uh, because i will probably be doing some radical rest in between <laughs> because this has been quite quite the task. Mm. Uh, but uh, thank you so much and um, I'll I'll speak to you soon. Mm.